This is the Citizen of Heaven podcast number 161, Luck. I am Hal Hammonds, and I am a Citizen of Heaven, and your embedded correspondent in Satan's world. Thanks for checking in. Ironic, isn't it? The man who never gets sick catches COVID the week he plans an episode on luck. You can't make this stuff up. Anyway, I'm likely not at my best vocally, so your patience is appreciated. This week we will discuss the myth of karma, our tendency to see bad luck crossing our path more often than good luck, the odds of humans evolving from non-living matter if it's even fair to calculate them, and how we can turn an unfortunate roll of the dice to our advantage. Let's start with what I've been preaching. I looked up karma in the dictionary, and this is what I found. Quote, In Hinduism and Buddhism, the sum of a person's actions in this and previous states of existence, viewed as deciding their fate in future existences. There's also an informal usage that may sound a little bit more familiar. Destiny or fate following as effect from cause. Karma is a pagan concept. It is blindly and thoughtlessly accepting some very dangerous and ungodly principles. The idea of reincarnation, for instance, past lives, etc. The Bible is quite clear about our existence, that we are born into this world, we die once, and afterward comes judgment. I would like to think that none of us really believes that these Hinduistic and Buddhistic principles of previous lives and such is actually going on. If there are Hindus and Buddhists out there listening to the podcast, by all means, reach out to me and we'll have a conversation about that. Now, most people will probably push back against that and say, no, that second definition sounded a little bit more like what, uh, what I was talking about, destiny or fate. Yeah, that's, that's just kind of the thing. And we probably don't use that even very carefully when we talk about karma in this way. Somebody cuts us off in traffic, and we see five minutes later that the state trooper has pulled him over to the side of the road. Ah, see, that's karma getting you. The idea basically is that bad deeds are met with bad results, negative results. There is cause and there is effect. And karma gives us some confidence that there are forces beyond our control, outside of our vision, that are making things that seem nonsensical to actually makes sense. Well, that's supposed to be God. That's what we are trusting God to do. And we are trusting God to do it in his timetable and not our timetable. That is what the Bible tells us over and over again. If we have faith, that ought to be enough for us. But I fear that this fondness for the idea of karma among Christians indicates a lack of faith, indicates a lack of patience indicates a lack of a proper understanding of what judgment is really all about. Karma implies that the world will balance itself out, that good people will have good things come to them and bad people will have bad things come to them. In the first place, I challenge you to show that to be a consistent truth in the world at all, because I don't really see any evidence for that. It happens from time to time, of course, but also the opposite happens. Bad things happen to good people and good things happen to bad people, etc., the idea of the world balancing itself out in the short term, within our lifetime, in our vision, shows a lack of faith in God's willingness to do the same thing, it shows a lack of confidence in God's judgment, 
It shows a tendency on our part to force his hand. When we read Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, and read about how faith is the substance of things that are hoped for, the evidence or the conviction of things that are not seen, we usually think of that in terms of our willingness to accept the creation story. That's what he goes on to say in, this, uh, in that same context in Hebrews chapter 11. And we'll talk about origin stories in a moment. But it's true in a broader sense also, and certainly true in a judgment sense. Do we have confidence or do we not have confidence that God is ruling the world, that God is ultimately just and fair and reasonable, that he treats good people the right way and he treats bad people the right way? We're quick to answer yes on that. But let's take a moment and think about this. I'm going to offer to you that trusting in God makes a whole lot more sense than trusting in karma. Karma, if we are honest with ourselves, works when it works. Things balance sometimes, but lots of times they don't balance. We know that to be true. God's better than that. God gives us confidence at all times. He doesn't always give us evidence. He doesn't always give us a rationale to believe. But what he does do is he shows up every day and he brings the sun out of the horizon and he sends rain on the just and the unjust. He continues to watch over us and provide for us and produce regular order that is so consistent that we very much take it for granted. This is the God that organizes the universe. And if we believe that he is truly adequate to organize the universe, then surely we should be willing to believe he's willing to organize justice. This is what I've been reading. The Kings of Big Spring is author Brian Mueller's effort to talk about his own family and the rise and fall of fortunes in his family and families near his in West Texas in the 20th century. Now, if you know much about Texas history, and especially if you know much about West Texas history, you know that it is a roller coaster ride. And in the 20th century, certainly it was all about oil. If oil was big, then Midland, Odessa, and Big Spring were big. And if oil went bust, then the entire culture went bust. In times like this, in times of boom and bust, it's easy to see yourself as being victimized by the forces of fate, the forces of bad luck out there beyond your control. If you do not stumble into a fortune when people all around you are doing exactly that, it may seem like the fates or karma or whatever other pagan concept you want to talk about are out to get you. It's just not in the cards. There's another metaphor for you or in the stars, yet another for you to be as fortunate, to be as, as rich, as prosperous as your neighbors. The Mealers actually came up with the term for it. They called it the Mealer luck. The Mealer luck basically meant those big things, those good things never happened to us. That seemed a remarkably cynical way of looking at things when I was reading that, especially given that the story begins, essentially, in the Great Depression. 
when there wasn't a whole lot of good luck, quote unquote, good luck out there for anybody. I think that we have this tendency oftentimes to see ourselves as picked on. We're unfortunate souls. We are destitute of any kind of of good fortune. And in our society, of course, it's easy to come to that conclusion because we see an awful lot of people who seem on the surface anyway to get rich very, very quickly with very little effort on their part, or at least very little effort that we can see, whether it's American Idol or whether it's high school basketball players signing for millions of dollars or whatever it happens to be. What we don't appreciate is most of those times these overnight successes are anything but overnight successes. And even if there is occasionally someone who just stumbles into an enormous amount of money, enormous amount of goodwill, good luck, that's not necessarily a good thing. Look at the history of lottery winners, for instance. That's an actual example of someone getting extraordinarily lucky and being benefited an enormous amount. An honest assessment of lottery winners would tell us that that's not necessarily a sign of good luck, that these lottery winners tend to do very, very poorly with their newfound wealth. But that's maybe a story for another day. These pity parties that we throw for ourselves, talking about how unfortunate we are because of our health situation, because of our financial situation, because we were born to parents who had various disadvantages or whatever it happens to be. Basically, it is a way of surrendering responsibility for your life. It's a way of saying, I am not going to amount to very much, and it's not my fault. And I would rather sit here in poor circumstances than do whatever it takes to get out of it, because that would take effort. It may or may not work. I don't want to take a chance on something like that. It's easier for me in my laziness to just sit back and allow the bad things to happen continually And then whine about it. I like what Ezekiel writes in Ezekiel 18 and verse 31. Cast away from you all your transgressions which you have committed, and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. For why will you die, O house of Israel? And many other passages read the same kind of way. Make for yourselves a new heart, a new spirit. Take control of your so-called destiny. Take control of your life and your future. You can do this. There are any number of stories that we can turn to, people who grew up in the ghetto, people who grew up in unfortunate circumstances, people who were crack babies or whatever it happens to be, and determined they were not going to allow their past or their background to define them, and they wound up making something of themselves. It doesn't always work as well as we would hope, obviously. But when we're talking about spiritual things, certainly, if you would rather whine about your lack of ability in this area or that area, then make the most of what you actually have. You're showing a lack of confidence in God and you're showing a lack of confidence in yourself. You are capable of growing. You're capable of developing. Don't leave your joy to luck. Don't leave your competence to luck. Take control of these things. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice in Philippians 4 verse 4. I'm sure that many of my brethren if push came to shove, would say they don't really believe that verse. They don't believe that it's possible to rejoice in every situation. And that's because they don't rejoice in every situation and they want to rationalize their own behavior, their own shortcomings. You can find joy. You can find peace. You can find contentment in this life. If you trust in God, if you do the best you can where you are with what you have, instead of fussing about what it is that you don't have or what other people have, 
This is what I've been hearing. Genesis 1.1 reads, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That was written thousands and thousands of years ago. And there have been all kinds of developments in scientific circles, in historical record-keeping, etc. Lots of very intelligent people have put their minds to this issue of origins. And I would put it to you that after all of that, after all has been said and done, Genesis 1-1 is the best, the simplest, the most consistent explanation of who we are and where we came from that has ever been suggested. The truth works like that. You would expect the actual truth to be the best explanation for current circumstances. Now, a lot of people will push back against that, of course. They will deny that there is any kind of intelligence behind the world that is around us. That it is, in fact, a result of random chance. We got lucky, essentially. And apparently we got really, really lucky because, especially in the last couple of hundred years, there have been all kinds of experiments that have been run under ideal circumstances, perfect circumstances, circumstances that would have worked if it could work. And yet we cannot create life in a test tube. Disorder does not create order. If you don't make an effort to clean your closet, your closet's not going to get more orderly. It's going to get less orderly. Your four-year-old's bedroom does not clean itself. Order requires intelligence. Except, we're told, by the intelligentsia, for that one time when the opposite happened. It could never, ever happen. It could never happen that order comes from disorder. Under any circumstances, at all. Except for the one time that it did happen. And nobody was around to see it. And we know it happened. Because it had to have happened. I'm not a scientist. But in my layman mind, I'm thinking that doesn't sound very scientific to me. Mankind in the 19th, 20th, 21st century has in many situations become too intelligent for its own good. And God warns us about this. First Corinthians chapter 1, a much less scientific generation back then. The world through its wisdom did not come to know God. If you are confident that you have enough intelligence, that you have enough candle power to work out who you are and where you came from, that you don't need God, you are naturally going to turn away from God. And when it comes down to it, I think the scientists would agree with this. The best argument against divine creation is simply that it's not possible. There's not a God because there couldn't be a God. Easy for me to say, of course, but it seems to me that the main advantage of arguing in favor of natural evolutionary origins rather than the Bible story is that it lets us off the hook morally and spiritually. If we are here because of luck, that frees us up for our own choices of behavior. And I will acknowledge right up front, if you have a creator, if you have someone who made you, there is an implicit understanding that you owe him a debt. You are indebted to him simply because you exist. You wouldn't have existed if it weren't for him. And therefore you owe him. That's a very simple concept. And I think every evolutionist understands it very, very well perhaps even better than some Christians. If we're here because of luck, though, 
then there wasn't a creator. And so therefore, there's no debt. Similarly, there's no judge. And if there's no judge, then we're not going to be held responsible in the big picture anyway for our choices. Now, we may hold ourselves responsible because we have a certain sense of morality or because we expect to be held responsible by the sheriff or the governor or whatever, and so we want to stay out of jail and we'll govern our behavior in that way, at least partially. But when you believe in God and you believe in eternal judgment based on your entire life, including things that were done in secret, that's going to limit your behavior in a way that is unacceptable to a lot of people. But if I believe there's no judge, then I can do whatever I want to and get away with it. Maybe the biggest issue of all, though, is the idea of humility. If there is a greater mind out there, then we don't get to claim to be the masters of the universe. Maybe it's just as simple as that. We have to acknowledge there's someone greater than us, someone who's smarter than us, someone who knows better than we know. That's an humbling thing, no doubt about it. It's humbling ourselves, and especially humbling ourselves under the mighty hand of God that grates with us. But better to accept the reality, accept truth, and alter our own perception of things than to persist in delusion and wind up on the wrong side of judgment. This is what I've been playing. I know that I talk a lot in this space about games that many of you have never heard of or likely never going to play. But I suspect most or all of us have played Yahtzee at some point. Yahtzee is a very simple game, what modern board gamers would call a roll and write. I suppose the earliest roll and write. You have five dice, and you roll these dice a maximum of three times, trying to fill out spaces on this piece of paper that you have, the largest number of sixes, fives, fours, threes, etc. Small straight, large straight, full house, and of course the ultimate five-of-a-kind, Yahtzee. Playing Yahtzee is kind of like playing life, in the sense that life hands you a certain reality, the first roll of the dice, as it were. And you can do what you want with that. If, for instance, you get a 6-5-2-1-1 in your first roll, and you like the idea of filling out your straight, after all, if you don't get the large straight, you can still have the small straight most of the time. So you keep the 6 and the 5, and you roll the others. And you roll three sixes. Well, it's time to change course at this point. It's time to accept the new reality. Now we have four sixes. Okay, let's keep all those sixes and roll the five again. And maybe we can get a Yahtzee. And in worst case scenario, we'll have a great number for sixes or four of a kind. Predetermining your course and following it blindly is naive and self-destructive. Life throws twists and turns at you. You can't play Yahtzee in the sense that, okay, I'm going to fill out all of the top half of the sheet first, and then I'm going to fill out all the bottom half of the sheet or some kind of big picture like that. We don't have that kind of control over our world. We don't know what tomorrow is going to be like, whether there's going to be a tomorrow. James compares our life to a vapor that quickly vanishes away in James 4, verse 13 and 14. Now, the alterations that we are making in our course, if we do make alterations, need to be within the larger framework, of course. It's always a good idea to go after Yahtzees. 
the more Yahtzees you get, the better. But if by going after Yahtzees all the time, you ignore the straights, you ignore full houses, etc., that's not going to help you very much. It's not just about getting the biggest set of sixes you possibly can get. It's about filling out the sheet. It's about playing the game. We as Christians should understand that. We realize that the twists and turns that come at us on an everyday basis are going to require us to shake things up a bit. 1 Corinthians 9 talks about Paul being all things to all men. Different circumstances are going to call for different approaches. Colossians 4 verse 6 talks about seasoning our speech with salt so we know how to respond to each person. Different circumstances are going to call for different conversations. But none of these tweaks to the plan change what we are actually doing in our life. What we are doing is serving Jesus. What we need to do every day is to wake up, get out of bed, and determine that we're going to serve Jesus. We may meet with bad luck or good luck. It may be a little bit easier for us to identify the bad luck. But regardless, whatever comes up, we make good decisions. We keep the big picture in mind. And of course, the biggest issue with all of this is faith. Regardless of what comes across our path, be it good or bad, we should have the attitude that Job had. Job 1 verse 21. He came to this world naked. He's going to leave naked. The Lord has given. The Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It's easy for us to convince ourselves that if we just got a little luck, if we just had a little bit of good fortune, it'd be so easy for us to serve Jesus. It'd be so easy for us to do the right thing. Well, I have news for you. It's never going to be easy to serve Jesus. It's always going to be a challenge. The question is whether you're going to be up for the challenge. It has nothing to do with good luck or bad luck or any other kind of luck. It has to do with whether you are committed to take whatever situation God gives you in any given day and turn it toward your spiritual advantage. It takes courage to do that. It takes humility to do that. It takes determination. It takes trial and error. But you're up to this. You can do this. You can take a bad role or a good role and turn it into something glorious for the Lord. You've been listening to the Citizen of Heaven podcast. Thank you for your support. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe through your favorite podcast platform and or on YouTube. Comments, corrections, and suggestions are always welcome. Please feel free to follow me through Facebook, MeWe, Parlor, or Instagram, or check out my webpage, www.halhammonds.com. Until next time, be strong and courageous, fight the good fight of faith, and do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is Hal Hammonds, the Citizen of Heaven, signing off.